There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series is dedicated to the discipline of psychiatry, discussing issues that whilst emanating directly from the discipline have implications for society generally. The series engages thought leaders from within the discipline and beyond to assist in exploring these issues and providing insights into some of the thinking that contributes to the richness of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. If I were to say Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Steven Spielberg and Richard Branson, what would they have in common? Success, fame and dyslexia, a specific learning disorder. Learning disorders affect many people with the specific problem often undiagnosed and the person misunderstood, potentially marginalized. Joining us for today's episode to discuss the challenges of living with learning problems, both as someone with a learning disorder and being a parent or loved one of someone with a learning disorder, I have Dr. Wendy Duncan and Natalie Solomon. Wendy is a subspecialist child and adolescent psychiatrist working in private practice here in Johannesburg, and she has a special interest in learning disorders. Natalie is a clinical psychologist. She's worked in remedial school settings for the past 18 years, and her clinical experience includes working with children, adolescents and adults, as well as parents, and she has multiple areas of professional interest, including learning difficulties. Wendy and Natalie, welcome, and thank you for making the time to join us for today's episode. Wendy, I'm, I'm going to start with you, but I'm just going to make a few comments before we jump in. I've always thought of learning problems as learning disabilities, but I suppose the more correct psychiatric terminology according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, version 5, the DSM-5, is specific learning disorders. So I suppose we should start there and, and, and just set our terms of reference, but just to give a perspective regarding the extent of the problem, and of course there are varying prevalence rates or estimates. For example, in the USA, they say one in five children has such problems. In South Africa, they approximately have noted 2.1 million children or 11% of the total childhood population as having such problems. Not a small problem. But, you know, let's return to the diagnostic category of specific learning disorders. And there are various uh, criteria and subtypes, but I think we kind of have three broad areas, reading, writing, and mathematics. So, over to you. Thanks, Prof. Yeah, indeed, not a small problem, but certainly one that's not always easy to detect. So if we think about things specifically from a definition point of view and using the DSM-5, right. which is our manual um, that we use in psychiatry and certainly in psychology, we talk about specific learning disorders as being neurodevelopmental conditions. Okay. Disorders that typically arise during the school period, um, although they may have existed pre-going right. into school, and focusing, as you said, specifically on key areas, reading, writing, and mathematics, bearing in mind that there's quite a lot of overlap right. between the three and that other areas might well be included, and some of these might be motor areas, some of these might be visual areas. Um, yeah, we used to have sort of what we'd call disparity criteria or okay. disparity diagnosis where we'd say, you know, a child typically with a specific learning disorder is considered to be intellectually functioning at an expected level, right. at an average level. 
Um, and so oftentimes these learning disorders would be unexpected because intellectually we're competent and capable, but we have a discrete area where um, there's a disparity. So that's, that's quite typically or classically the way we used to think about it. It's sort of falling by the wayside. Okay. Um, the other way of looking at it is to Why say, is it falling by the wayside? I mean, what's, what's, what's changed in terms I mean, of our thinking? I think there's been a more dimensional approach and a developmental approach where, um, you know, we're sort of saying, well, everyone develops at their own pace. Okay. And perhaps there's a disparity because there hasn't been a particular area of input or there's a particular area of struggle. Okay. And so let's get, let's get some intervention in first. And then we only call it a specific learning difficulty or learning disorder once intervention has failed. Okay. Um, so I think that's much more generous in terms yeah. of really looking at the individual and seeing right. what their specific needs might be and to what extent, if there's been a failing in terms of input, we've arrived at this problem. So without saying they've got a specific disorder, we actually intervene where there's a deficit and maybe there is no disorder. And maybe there's no disorder. Okay, yeah. carry on. Sorry. I had to jump in there and just clarify yeah, so we've got these uh, specific learning disorders, I suppose. As you pointed out in South Africa, it's very difficult to know, mm. you know, and you mentioned the term dyslexia, which uh, in part is a specifically reading-related disorder. Yes. I mean, there really is a concern that probably up to 10% of individuals have this condition. That's a That's a high number. That's a high number. It means in every class and in every, if we look at the government school, you've got at least four kids in a 40, yeah. 40 student class that are battling with this. The other thing about specific learning disorders is they're lifelong conditions. So they're neurodevelopmental right. conditions and their nature might shift and morph, but they're conditions that the individual is going to have to deal with to some extent for, for their lives. Um, so they are lifelong Conditions, but obviously the point at which we like to intervene is mm. early on. Yes. Because the earlier we, we make the, the diagnosis, um, the earlier we can get going. Um, I just wanted to pick up briefly on the disorder disability yes, issue. Yes, because I think yeah. that, you know, I'm, I'm using old terminology and I think that uh, I kind of caught yeah. myself and said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll mention the word disability, but I think that that's mm. not the mm. way we look at things. So at the moment, and certainly from a clinical point of view, disorder is the way we go. Right. Where disability comes in, and I suppose it's more necessary in countries other than ours, where it becomes a legal or an educational okay. term. Where you can access accommodations uh, for scholastic, um, you know, situations you can access if you're defined as having a disability. Okay. In the same way as the child who is maybe physically disabled can access their ramp, right. the, the child with the learning disorder can access accommodations if the, the disability is given as an educational term or access funding if it's given as a legal term. So there's utility in the use of the term disability, but it's more legal, financial than necessarily clinical. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so that's yeah. that, that's an important distinction. But you, you mentioned something important that obviously is, is, is going to come in, which is intellectual functioning and mm. specific learning disorders. And I think one of the sort of um, global issues is barriers to learning. What gets in the way of learning? Mm. And I mm. think a specific learning disorder is, is, is one of those. Mm -hmm. um, 
but obviously intellectual disability again <laughs> coming from the disability background but now that would be called intellectual development disorder mm. now in days gone by they used to classify according to IQ score mm-hmm. we've moved away from that completely it seems to me or have we i would say not entirely not entirely um there's much more of a focus with intellectual or developmental uh intellectual developmental disorder yes uh much more focus there on adaptive capacity and adaptive functioning and social functioning as to purely an IQ score but fundamentally and i suppose again from a very practical point of view if folks are going to access funding services um disability grants etc etc right. et we do have to attach a score and and so even in the the ICD 11 right you know they're still looking at parameters which which are set out as mild moderate severe yes i think i, I think dsm uses the same but same previously we had a score attached mm, to a mm, descriptor mm. whereas now we've got a description attached to the descriptor we've got a lengthy detailed description very detailed I mean I suppose just from a practical point of view and certainly in the clinical setting yeah. we engage with one another probably with the understanding of of what that score is. Yes. You know and and, and the score and the whole concept of IQ and intelligence has been expanded and you know unpacked but there certainly needs to be an understanding of to what extent the individual deviates from from the median from from what would be expected score. so you know where we say 100 is sort of the score you know the score two standard deviations below which is about 30 below okay you'd be starting to say well then you're going into mild intellectual impairment right. or mild intellectual developmental disability right so i mean an there used to be the borderline intellectual mm-hmm. which kind mm-hmm. of fell somewhere between yeah. what would be regarded as normal versus mildly mentally impaired or suffering from what they would call these days intellectual development disorder but i wanted to come back to this and i'm going to bring you in here natalie the the issue of iq mm-hmm. you know we 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 maybe i'm talking about different schooling systems but there was a lot of emphasis i can remember when i was at school we all did iq tests yes. it was like a standard thing and they would kind of give you your score and they would determine what your future career path might look like or where you could be fitted in uh, and there was a feedback session actually often in terms of your iq score you'd get the whole printout with all the different sub tests and what have you and a lot of emphasis was placed on the iq score and i think that one has to be careful in how one interprets the actual score so what are what are your thoughts and, and maybe if you want to just talk a little bit about what does an iq test embrace what is it oh, for sure so look traditionally an iq test is divided into five indices so what we look at is one's verbal intelligence we look at fluent reasoning we look at perceptual reasoning we look at working memory and processing speed right and then all together you get an average and you get a sense of a person's learning potential um it comes with many <laughs> many difficulties in that um of course a child it's going to depend on a particular day it depends on um certainly one's level of um, motivation right. if one's experiencing current trauma it's all going to impact in terms of your level of performance but it gives us a marker for a particular moment in time mm. 
it gives us a sample of the child's behavior. What it doesn't take into account is cognitive modifiability. What it doesn't take into account is when we target specific um, strategies, when we focus on areas of growth and strength, what does that look like? Just going back, this cognitive modifiability, that's a, a nice term. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? So... Um, it's, it's influenced by the Feuerstein Institute and they uh, speak about instrumental enrichment and they talk about the potential of every child right. or every brain to shift, but given targeted, focused, specific types of intervention. And so it would be understanding your general profile, right. um, learning potential, but then we want to look at how do you respond to specific interventions and what kind of outcome can we have if we teach you targeted um, skills? So for me, that is a more hopeful yes. um, approach mm -hmm. where you're saying, well, whatever your IQ score is, let's look at the cognitive modifiability exactly. and say, okay, let's look at the individual and say, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What can we work on in terms of enhancing mm -hmm. or compensating for? Because I, I think that there had, had tended to be like a, an almost like an absolute response to an IQ score. It's like, okay, boom, that's you. Absolutely. You're done for. And, and what it doesn't take into account yeah. is grit. And what it doesn't take into, into account is the growth mindset, right. which actually are enormous factors in reaching potential. So you could have great potential, but you can really be uh, yeah, struggling with the other aspects, you're not yes. going to see the outcome. Well, I think that is where there was that shift from IQ to EQ yes. and looking at emotional intelligence, which seemed to offer a much broader perspective on the individual as opposed to limiting them to a score. It's a little bit like, geez, I keep coming back to eating disorders always. That's like looking at a number on a scale. Exactly. <laughs> you know, where like that defines mm -hmm. me. No, that's a moment in time. That's what it is. And if, if you allow that to define you, what kind of a life are you going to have? Because you're not a number specifically. But I know back in the day, that number mm -hmm. did define you in a sense. I don't know, mm -hmm. Wendy, if, if, if you would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why the sort of move away from it and the, the sort of need to broaden. Um, we do sort of practically find ourselves between a rock and a hard place, you know, yes. where there's cutoffs for, for funding, there's cutoffs for, uh, school access, et cetera, et cetera. So. Very it, important. So, I mean, it's got very practical implications mm -hmm. in terms of accessing resources. Very yeah. important. Sorry, so I jumped in there. Yeah, I but, think, but, uh, so the need to shift to, towards the Forestine approach is certainly starting to be understood. Well, I think it's yeah. a welcome shift. But for me, what was always important as a clinician, when the psychologist would present the IQ score, I was interested in the subtests. Mm. I wanted to look at the, the kind of Captain. spectrum and I wanted to see where, and I think that's what people need to understand is that there's the verbal, there's the nonverbal, but, but so those are the two big sort of branches. But within each of those, there are subtests, which look at specific functions, specific attributes. And for me, that was always more interesting because I wanted to know where's the person falling down? Where are they strong? What would your thoughts be no, there? Of course. So I think the index scores are really just an average. And what we really want to be looking at is the graph. The pattern. Right. Um, we want to see what are the areas of strength and weakness and why there would be that particular pattern to try and understand. Um, so 
yeah, getting kind of a really more holistic, um, insightful understanding as well as taking into account a lot of qualitative measures, looking at endurance, looking at impulsivity, um, looking at levels of motivation. Um, those are all going to have really important outcomes. Um, and that's something you have to look at um, when you are assessing. Well, I think that's very important is that the assessor is not just saying, well, here's a test, answer the questions. You're actually looking at the individual whilst they are tackling the, 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 the specific components of the IQ test, are looking at all those issues, mm-hmm. impulsivity, determination, persistence, the ability, and, and the, the attention span. As well as approach to task. And I think ah, that's really yes. important. And that's where the Feuerstein model comes in because they look at what are your areas of strength and weakness and what is your particular approach to task. And that's where mediation can come in. If you understand your strengths, you can approach from a strengths-based focus right. as opposed to the things that you're struggling with. Well, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's almost a truism to say it, but – if I can focus on your strengths, then I start to build a different kind of foundation for further success where you can then start tackling your deficits yeah. from a position of success where I focused on your strengths, exactly. which I think is very important. So we also used to, when using the IQ score, and we're still sort of sticking with intellectual development disorder, um, the issue of educable versus trainable. That was always a key kind of issue for us. You know, is this person trainable? Okay, so they go over there. This person's educable, they sit over there. So what are your thoughts on those concepts and to what extent they are still um, commonly used, if at all? I think it's always about resources. And I think that's the shame, actually, because the truth is that everybody should be educable. But unfortunately, we don't have access to resources as we would wish. Um, but the Feuerstein model believes in human potential. Right. And it does believe that everybody has capacity to adapt. Again, understanding th- that there are parameters. So it's not yes. being unrealistic. No, no, I think that's very important, the issue of being realistic. But I think that when you speak about human potential, mm. we're saying that there's scope. Yes. And I think that is important because I, I – I, I, I had a sense in days gone by, and I, you know, my, my own thinking has shifted in terms of what I've seen um, personally and certainly clinically, where you've got to look at the individual, mm-hmm. and you can't simply say, well, this person has that score, therefore this is where they fit in, that's their box, and that's where they stay. Mm-hmm. And without being unrealistic, I think it is about looking for what is, what is the potential. But a, a, an important issue for me is who spots the problem? Who makes the diagnosis? Because I think these are key issues. Where does this come into the mix? So, Wendy. So, who spots the problem? I mean, often it is the teacher. Right. And, you know, using as a rider Natalie's point about resources, because when you've got a 40 or 50 strong classroom, maybe the teacher's not going to see it. But often it is the teacher. Sometimes it might be the parent, and particularly if the parent themselves has specific struggles okay. um, or has had specific struggles. Or sometimes if they identify. have a struggle, they might not notice it. Yeah. Or if they have a child who's maybe more neurotypical, or, you know, then they might see a difference. Sometimes the psychiatrist might spot it. Because, I'm talking before you get to the psychiatrist. Okay. okay. Because I so, think that's really. 
yeah. the key issue because by the time you get to the psychiatrist, okay, we, we think there's a problem here. And the psychiatrist is then going to assess. Yeah. But before we get there, who recognizes it to the extent mm. that they mm. say, hmm, think mm. there's a problem mm. and mm. Um, what are we going to do with this? Yeah. I mean, a lot of our children access occupational therapy early on, right? developmental interventions. So it may be the occupational therapist, speech and language therapist. And obviously these are in communities where there is a higher level of privilege and access. I think that is a very, very important issue, certainly within our context. Mm. The issue of resources, access to resources, the means to access resources, mm. and the awareness where you can kind of look at your child and, as you said, maybe in relation to another child that you have or other children where you actually mm. are making a decision based on comparison where you can actually realistically compare and say, hmm, I think there's a problem here, which is difficult in itself, I think, because now you've got to acknowledge that you're on the path which I'm not sure where it takes you. Mm. So those, mm. those are issues that I'm still going to, to come to. But certainly – who spots the problem? You've mentioned teachers, maybe parents. Natalie, your your, your um, sense? Also sometimes extramural coaches, you know, the soccer coach or the dancing teacher, the art mm. teacher, um, and of course those would be resource communities. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's mm. what we're talking mm. about here, where you've got mm. this basically mm. array of eyes mm. that are looking at a child and saying, hmm, somewhat different to the other kids, mm. and then having a discussion. So I think the, the issue of who spots... Yes, because often the kids will just go through the schooling process. Now, what I've understood is that certainly um, in my day, aging myself, we went as far as grade two and then we switched to standards. Now, of course, we go a lot further, up to grade 12. So w what I've understood is that within the current schooling system, grade three, which would be the equivalent of standard one to grade four, seemingly there's a difference there between grade three and four where there's much more responsibility placed on the child. They move around to different classrooms. There's much more independence required. And sometimes at that point, the vulnerability reveals itself. I'm not sure what your experience is in that sense. And I, I'm not saying we have to be specific about the transition from three to four, but Transitional times mm. as exposing vulnerability. It definitely is. And I think in part because they begin formal assessment in grade four, uh -huh. but also in part because we move away from the mechanics of learning. At the beginning, we're focused on the mechanics and now we've, we expect that they should know that. That should be internalized. Okay. And there's less of a focus on skills and now on understanding. And that's where we see the fallout. Kids okay. can't do that on their own. So – the basics, so we're talking about the basics of reading, writing, and mathematics. And just for technical terms, problems with reading, dyslexia, problems with writing, they say dysgraphia, problems with mathematics, dyscalculia. So what I'm hearing you say is that there's an expectation that there are consolidated skills which you now have to apply. And if you don't have those skills consolidated, boom, it all breaks down. Wendy? Absolutely, and I think a lot of children, I mean – by our very nature as human beings, I think we we play to our strengths. So a lot of children, particularly a, a very verbal child or a very physically robust child, would potentially, without even realizing they were struggling, they'd compensate. Okay. So unless you had a very particularly astute educator when you've got a child in your classes, you know, very verbal, engaged, participating, but actually quietly is not learning to read. 
it may not be recognized until there's a watershed point. Right. And that watershed could be the grade four point. It could be the watershed between sort of senior primary and, and uh, you know, high school. Right. The, the grade six, seven or the grade grade eight. Um, so these transitions are important. So the actually. transitions of, often kind of uh, bring things to the fore. Because I think what's very important here conceptually is that there's an expectation of consolidation of skills. So it's like the train just keeps moving. Mm. You know, it just keeps mm. going. And if you're left behind, you just get increasingly left behind. And I think one of the issues for me is the, I'm going to call them the special needs child in a mainstream school. Because I think that's uh, where we really, you know, come up against some of the real difficulties. Um, and there are consequences for that. Mm. You know, so I don't know, Wendy and Natalie, do you want to jump in there mm. and, and, and just el- elaborate on, on your own experience in terms of what you've seen? Because you're a child and adolescent psychiatrist, yeah. you're a psychologist mm. who've worked with children and adolescents. So I suppose my, my first question would be, well, what do we mean by the special needs child? Right. Are we talking about a child who has uh, intellectual impairment? Okay. Um, or are we talking about a child who is intellectually able but right. has a particular area of yes. deficit, if you forget So in other term. words, they, they, they sort of are falling within that category of barriers to learning, but we've got to yeah. distinguish what yeah. exactly are we talking about. Yeah. Okay, carry on. Um, because I know in South Africa the, the ethos is one of inclusive education. Right. You know, and, and there is great benefit to, to having a child who has a specific learning disorder or maybe even a child that we'd previously have called borderline intellectual impairment in, in the so-called mainstream school, the mainstream milieu. There's, there's huge benefits from a social point of view, yes. from a, from a sporting point of view, from a cultural exposure point of view. But the flip side is you do have a young person, and this is often where I would come in, or the psychologist would come in, you have a young person who is increasingly stressed. Right. And I use that term sort of very generically because stress can look very different in some, in, in different kids. So increasingly stressed maybe. Anxious, avoiding, pushing back, not engaging with the schoolwork, right. or acting out. Acting out. And, and gets a target on their back Absolutely. as being a problem child. And then that becomes the explanation for the deficit in schoolwork. They're difficult children. Yeah. Right. These are difficult, these are problem children. They're creating disruptions. So, I mean, difficulties in behavior, difficulties in mood. Not just depression, but anxiety, because I think there is a lot of that, that 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 takes place, and ultimately, I think it impacts on on self esteem, yes. mm. how the child feels about themselves, and so Natalie, absolutely, and I think that their sense of self is destabilized in terms of how they choose to come to understand themselves, how other people engage with them. And then it also impacts on interpersonal relations mm, right. as well as hugely on family relations. If one's sense of self is not intact, if one doesn't feel valued and doesn't feel um, adequate in one's being, there's going to be an impact on how one engages with the world and oneself. You know, one of the concerns I have, and, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong in my understanding, but it seems – well. I'm going back now. Children used to fail standards and would have to repeat. 
which was difficult in and of itself. I, I always found that particularly problematic for the, for the child who got left behind, so to speak. Now we have a situation where everybody just gets promoted, but they're kind of getting left behind in real time mm-hmm. is they're getting promoted with their peers, but they're getting further and further behind. And so that's a real concern for me is that they, they, they're kind of lost because we've got a system which is not sort of saying, oh, hang on a sec. This may be a child who's got specific problems. They're just being promoted. And to what extent is that happening where we're missing out on so many kids who might benefit from being taken out of the system, which is not a discriminatory move in that sense if they're going to get what they need, as I would understand it. So has our education system, by virtue of this everybody just moves through, potentially inadvertently in terms of not wanting to discriminate, maybe discriminated? Your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think there's a fallout because if you're not succeeding um, academically, yes, you're moving ahead and progressing physically and chronologically with your peers, but I guess your areas of interest will not be in school and your areas of focus will will be elsewhere. And so by that, as a consequence, you often may see that kids um, get involved in certain behaviors that are not always conducive to growing their potential. Right. Um, Antisocial behaviors, potentially? absolutely. Substances? They might look for a sense of belonging by joining gangs. And they might look for kind of a sense of connection through promiscuity. But their focus, um, as a result of feeling inadequate, it's always kind of with them. Right. so they're not able to really reach potential or to to mediate so that they we they can um, achieve. So they have to look um, elsewhere. Wendy, your thoughts? Because I, I just had a thought as you were speaking about this whole issue of human potential mm. and systems where you find yourself and that ability to reach your potential. But I'll come back to that. Wendy, any further thoughts on what Natalie was saying? I, mean, I think. You know, the idea of inclusivity and everyone moving is is great yes. in theory. But the truth is, and I often find myself telling parents this in, in the office, is, you know, we don't all have the same trajectory. Mm. And our trajectory is not uniform. Yeah. Um, and I think inadvertently, yeah, there are thousands and thousands of children getting left behind, even in privileged settings. No, no, absolutely. Um, but and I think maybe, maybe even, board, maybe yeah. even more so in privileged settings to some extent because there's a definite expectation. Mm, mm. You know, if I send you to a private school, you will perform in a certain way. Mm, and mm. so I think that um, the issue of <coughs> recognizing, acknowledging, owning, acting, and not feeling less than. Mm-hmm. Where essentially you've identified a need which this particular system cannot meet. And therefore an alternate system mm-hmm. is, is, is what is preferable coming back to the issue of human potential. Because mm-hmm. if I put a child in the wrong system, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Because the truth of the matter is, and I, I have to acknowledge what it must be like as a teacher. Mm-hmm. You're looking at a general group. You're looking at the mean. But you keep moving. You are not necessarily in a mainstream setting geared towards the individual who might be struggling, falling behind. Yes, to some Mm. extent, but I'm not sure because you've got to take care of the majority who are all sort of holding pace with you. Mm. And I I just think that where a child is in the wrong setting, huge disservice. So. Yeah. The concept of the the orchid and the dandelion. Tell us. And that. 
The dandelions can grow anywhere. Um, they're hardy. They'll find their way to the sun. Right. Um, but they're not as beautiful. And the orchids, um, well, they'll only flower under specific environmental conditions. And they're going to require very special tending to. But when they flower, they are beautiful. Um, it's a very nice analogy, actually, mm-hmm. looking at that. And, and I think one of the difficulties, and I'm getting back to something that you'd said earlier, Wendy, I mean, is, it's, it's that the child may be perfectly competent socially, initially. Mm. And so you don't mm. see, you miss completely what is going on under the surface. And it's only, I think, once you get into these transitional times or the formal structured kind of testing mm. of the skills that you suddenly see that there's a, that mm. there's a problem. And I think it's at that point an astute teacher might call the parents in and say, you know, I think we're dealing with something here that needs to be addressed mm. and formally assessed. So as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, Natalie, as a psychologist, is that how it works in the sort of real clinical world? Is, 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 am I describing something that might be close to how it works or is it not like that? I think, I mean, in my experience, in a, in a lot of instances, yes. Right. Um, so there would be a sense of something's up, right. something's up. There might be a reflection on the quality of the schoolwork or the sense from the educator that actually I can see his or her potential, but we're not quite getting there and I don't know why, mm. you know. Um, and, and so that is how it happens a lot of the time. Some of the time it would be, and that's why I was saying earlier, it would be the psychiatrist or the psychologist right. who sees it because some of the time it's the bad behavior or the sad behavior that that presents. And then it's incumbent on the specialist to say, but why is this kid so stressed? Why right. is this kid acting out so much? And then you can go under and, and try and work it out. But often it's, you know, in my context, um, it would be that the teacher said, mm, something's not quite right here. Yes. You need to go and ask the question, which I think for parents is a huge struggle. I yes, and I think that's 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 the issue that I'm kind mm. of getting to because at the end of the day, um, you're making a diagnosis of a problem, but you're making the diagnosis of a problem which may require them to rethink expectations mm. in terms of their child mm. and rethink setting in terms of where their child is going to mm. receive an education. And I think that's really difficult. Absolutely. One of the concerns I have is the diagnosis of other psychiatric conditions Mm -hmm. where you actually have a fundamental learning disorder. So where you've got the acting out, where you have the mood, where you have the anxiety, which are all real Mm. and occur as a consequence. Where those kinds of diagnoses get made, that's where the child finds themselves. But actually underneath all of that, there's something else going on which is far more profound. And if addressed adequately, maybe the other stuff goes away. So, so I think um, from a parent's perspective, getting a diagnosis can feel incredibly overwhelming. Yes. I mean, it, it does at one level shift all your expectations. But more than that, it's incredibly taxing. Financially, it's yes. taxing. Emotionally, it's taxing. And there's a sense of having this knowledge and this responsibility to do something about it. And not everyone has access. Mm. Um, for some people, it's wounding as well. Mm. 
because there's a sense of responsibility, there's a sense of shamefulness, um, and for some couples, there's blaming that happens. Yes, now that is a very mm. important issue because we've got to get mom and dad on the same page mm. at the same time. Mm. So sorry, carry on, but I, I agree with you completely. So... Yeah, so certainly um, getting a diagnosis is very complex in terms of the impact it will have on families. Um, and um, But it's crucial that there is a movement towards action because yes. I think often people can get stuck in the denial um, because it's just so overwhelming and the child really does suffer in those spaces. So I think it's the issue of acceptance. So, Wendy, I'll come back to you because obviously as a clinician, you know You've done an assessment, you kind of got a good idea of what you're looking at, and now the critical moment is everyone's sitting in front of you mm. and they're waiting for your opinion. Mm. And now you have to spill the beans and say, mm-hmm, well, this mm. is what I think. So how does that generally work out? Well, I wish there was an easy answer to that. <laughs> but the short answer is it depends. And I suppose in, in child psychiatry, we have the caveat of, of what we call a differential diagnosis. Yes. Where I can say to, to the parents, okay, folks, look, we have a cluster of problems going on. I think from a psychiatric point of view, we may be dealing with X, but if we interrogate underneath, and look at the developmental issues we're dealing with, possibly a learning issue, possibly a sensory issue, possibly a low motor tone issue, whatever the case may be. And then I sort of see my job as then having sort of to direct traffic. Okay. I mean, a lot of the time, and we're coming up for a very busy time for me because it's now coming to September. Right. Schools need to be found. And then it's all of a sudden, quick, 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 we must see the doctor because if we medicate this, then he or she won't need to go to remedial school. If we medicate this, we won't need to repeat the year. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so sometimes there is a quest for a quick fix in terms of a medication mm-hmm. because the, the, the emotional behavioral state is imagined to explain the entirety of the picture. Um, but sometimes, yeah, we've got to do some very long conversations. And I think that's the issue for me is that we get sucked into the quick fix. Mm. And I obviously have a concern. I'm, I'll say it. I'm a much more conservative prescriber. And I'm always looking at context because for me, and I hammer it all the time, it should be my middle name, is looking at context. Mm. Where do these problems emanate from? What are the circumstances and before we – because, you know, certainly in terms of DSM-5, we can make diagnoses quite easily from mm. a simple tick box symptom point of view. However, if that's the way you're going to go, you may miss the big problem. And I think it's incumbent upon us as mental health professionals is that when we see a behavioral problem, a mood problem – and we're talking children and adolescents, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what is the context here? What is going on? Is there something more yeah. beneath the surface? And it does concern me. But, I mean, I've seen very subtle problems have profound implications in terms of mood, mm. emotional functioning. I came across one the other day which was – which I would call a visual perceptual problem, which was so subtle. But when I sat with the individual – and I had had a history of, of how they were struggling and they were falling behind, falling behind. Now, this is an intelligent individual. There's no issue around intellectual capacity. 
but somehow they are falling behind. They've got attentional problems, concentration problems, usually towards the latter part of the day. And I'm like, okay, something is going on. And it turns out that there are visual perceptual issues, very subtle. But the ability to kind of focus accurately on a word and process it is not there. So this poor child is battling throughout the day. So no wonder by 4 o'clock they're hammered. And then it becomes an attention problem. Oh, I think I've got attention deficit. Uh-huh. And I'm saying, I don't think so. I think there's more going on here. And this is the kind of thing that concerns me because all too easily one can get focused on a symptom and not pick up the story. And yeah. so these visual perceptual problems have become a thing in my mind now because I've now come up against one. And that was picked up by, by an optometrist. Mm-hmm. A behavioral optometrist. I never heard of behavioral optometry. But what she did was she actually showed me. Yeah. She was like, she sent me a video. Said, have a look at this. And I was fascinated because like, here's the two dots. And then you're saying, well, where's the patient's eye? And they're not zeroing in. They're just kind of there or thereabouts. And then you're looking at the tracking across words. Now, this is a very subtle problem because the child can read, the child can write, but yet they're struggling. Mm. And unless you happen to push and push and push, you don't necessarily get to an answer, which then takes you towards occupational therapy as opposed to pharmacotherapy. Mm-hmm. So that's the point I'm making, is that these subtle problems can have profound consequences. Sorry, I f- sound like I'm giving a lecture yeah. here, but I'm not sure what your experience is yeah. in terms of, of those kinds of problems or similar kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, I certainly I I tend to want to provide parents with a bit of a roadmap and I think it can be very frustrating for them because you want to come to the doctor and get an answer and have a solution but I would certainly say and I'm quite comfortable with sort of saying to parents you know what I think you need to go and do X or I think you need to get a proper psychoeducational assessment or I think you need to go and get a proper ocular assessment Um, and then if we're still battling and if we still don't have an answer, then we'll, we'll interrogate the role that medication has to play here. Right. But you the know. nature of a learning difficulty is developmental and yeah. lifelong. Yeah. And okay. so even though we might get on top of it at one stage, as they move into mm-hmm. a different stage, again, there's new challenges. It's challenge. So it's really yeah. kind of a journey with no full mm. stop. Um, I, think that's, I think that's very important because yeah. we're saying it evolves mm. As the person evolves, the needs potentially change. The demands are different. And so it's, it's not something that you deal with as a child and then you're done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to some extent, it's always going to linger and mm-hmm. you're going to have to adapt and apply yourself mm-hmm. accordingly, which I think yeah. is very important. Mm-hmm. And I suppose with most psychiatric conditions, I'm, mm-hmm. I struggle a bit with learning disorders as a psychiatric condition, but that's where yeah, it is. Yeah. But we're talking about a lifelong because obviously we come to adults and we come to the parents in the room. And how often do they have learning problems that have possibly been undiagnosed mm-hmm. or not dealt with? And now mm-hmm. we're seeing it in the, in the children. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure how often that happens. It happens a lot of the time. It happens a lot of the time. I'd say comfortably 30, 40% of the time. That's interesting. When you do the family history and you go back and you say, well, this one had this issue that, you know, it's, it's, it's there quite a lot. And I think on on one hand that's often quite helpful because parents themselves have survived a struggle, right? And they will come and say, "I don't want 
my child to, to, go, through the to same. go through the same thing. You know, I think, you know, in terms of the psychiatrist making the diagnosis, we can, I think we can suspect it. Yes. But we rely on our colleagues in educational yes. psychologists to make that diagnosis. Well, I think the issue of assessment is that it has to be multidisciplinary. Mm. And I think this is really where the full spectrum of, of, of professionals comes into to play from psychologists to occupational therapists. And now I've learned optometrists mm-hmm. as well. I, I, I must be honest, I, I'd never contemplated that. Can, can I tell you something yes. interesting that in South Africa, the bulk of the literature on dyslexia is written by optometrists. Okay. That, um, you know, it's, it's a thing. It's a it's a big thing, and it's very important for me as a psychiatrist to kind of expand my own sense mm. of who are the additional professionals mm. who might be part of the process. Mm. And I think it's only when because it's not taught, Mm-mm. it's not taught, and it's only when you in in the in the sort of uh, when you when you're at the coalface mm. where you suddenly come up against this and and, and you get this revelation. Say, aha! Mm. So, and and it really was like an aha moment for me. I was very. Taken with what I had seen, and and uh, it's now made an imprint because now I think about these things. I, I think one of the issues I have, and, and and we've touched on it in terms of privilege and, and and resources. So how many kids fall through the cracks, and how many of those kids end up with diagnosed psychiatric conditions when what is really missed is the learning difficulty? So your thoughts on that, because that's a big concern for me as I've looked into this. No, I think a huge amount, um, and it yeah. really is a travesty because mm. I think that intervention can change a child's life. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so. So, do you think stigma gets in the way? Yes. Because mm. I think there's a there's a big mm. thing about mm. being learning disabled or having a learning disorder or being a remedial child. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a massive stigma to that, mm. and certainly in my clinical experience, I've seen remedial children go to university. And I've been at pains to say, you are not that. You were that. You've struggled. You've endured. You've prevailed. This is where you are now. And you've got to see yourself as you are, not as you were. But let me tell you, it takes a lot Mm. to lose that. And it takes a lot for people who knew them to lose that in terms of how they think of them. I think it's changing in terms of people focusing more on neurodiversity and so understanding that different Mm. minds learn differently and at different rates. And so it takes it out of the language of pathology to a space where we understand different brains just need different Mm. systems. Mm. Which is, which is, which is good and well if you're working in a system that actually Bears that in mind. Exactly. Because I'm not sure that that is something that is generally, not so much accepted, understood. So I think it sounds to me as if there is a kind of an educational issue in terms of how we understand and that the, the, the issue of that neurodiversity also requires systems that accommodate, accommodate that neurodiversity. So there's mainstream schooling for the bulk, but beyond that, and going back to where I started out that up to 11% of, of kids in this country uh, may have such problems. Mm. I certainly don't think that 11% of educational facilities uh, would meet those needs, specifically. Not at all. Not at all. And so for me, that is, that is, that is clearly where I think the, the problem lies. So taking it out of the formal uh, system, I see that these kind of problems are hard work. Hard work for parents, hard work for the individual. So your thoughts on, 
on that. Yeah, I think that's actually really important because I think people or often parents believe that this is something that can be fixed. Right. So they'll come, they'll throw money at it, they'll spend hours and hours, and sometimes the shifts are minimal. Mm-hmm. And it can be incredibly devastating and often they can get cross. There's yes. a sense of, Anger. well, you promised me this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, it's re, re-looking at it. It's a developmental issue. There are going to be issues that are going to be hard forever, but there's accommodations and there's strategies and there are strengths. And that's what we're going to be working with. But the issue is going to remain the issue forever. Mm-hmm. And I think the issue of expectations is so critical here, Wendy, when you're working with parents. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think particularly in the intelligent child yes. who appears to have some sort of, well, or who does have have learning difficulty, mm. the issue of ex- expectation, the issue of sort of aspirational loss mm. yes. you know, is, is, is a huge one to overcome. And I think the hard work also goes back to the fact that specific learning disorders are accompanied by a significant amount of comorbidity. Yeah. So flipping that question you were asking yes. around is to say, well, could the SLD look like an anxiety, a depression, a behavior? The the specific learning disorder child, you know, the rates of ADHD are massive. Mm. The rates of Anxiety or massive, the rates yes. of behavior disorder. So there's hard work from that perspective. There's hard work from having to, you know, approach things differently, having to, for parents to approach things difficult, differently, for the generation of parents who's gone through a particular education system to now try and get their head around completely novel way of doing things. Yes. You know, the exciting thing is that there are novel ways, and thank goodness for technology and accommodations. We Mm. can check also access is granted in a way that it wasn't before. And I've certainly seen. I mean, where you take, and I'm going to harp on the word individual, but I think there has to be an individual understanding of the individual needs that require an individual approach. Mm. And sometimes it's only the parent actually. Because I've seen that, where systems, even special needs systems, have not been willing or able to accommodate where the parent has said, I'm going to handle this. Mm. And they've stepped in, and it's been incredible uh, to see the ability to mobilize a particular child, not necessarily in the formal education sense, but in terms of finding their level maximizing their potential and actually having them become a functional member of the family unit where they can mm-hmm. actually take part meaningfully. Whereas if you'd listen to the system, even the special needs system, they would have been mm-hmm. nowhere. Mm-hmm. And in fact, so for me, the parental attitude is critical here. And I think from a therapeutic point of view, you know, as a psychiatrist, as a psychologist, when you work with families, I think that is for me a, such a such a key component mm. in terms of the work that takes place. I mean, your thoughts there working with parents because, you know. <laughs> absolutely. I think it's absolutely crucial. I think a parent is the child's first advocate and their best advocate. Um, but at the same time, the flip side is that sometimes when they are not on that side or yeah. um, that they're mm. blinded by their own issues, they can really obstruct 
um, opportunity. So mm. absolutely, I think once you have the parent on board, the battle's yeah. half won. I certainly find in my practice I need to spend about 30% of my time with my initial consultation. I sort of divide it up in thirds, but mm. the, the last third is around psychoeducation. Yes. Trying to understand, draw things out, try and sort of, if you can, and maybe over time, connecting with the parents' vulnerabilities and the parents' expectations and aspirations and, and explaining it. You know, as best or as as you can, trying yes. to unpack potential consequence. Well, without being unrealistic to say, look, here's the problem, but here's what we can do. And it's really about establishing what is possible, how you consolidate that, and how you grow from that and maximize the individual potential. Because I do think that an initial response is like, oh, my word, mm. what are you telling me? Where are we going with this? And so I do think that a lot of the psychotherapeutic work is with the parents. That would be my Mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. And I think the educational component is critical without being unrealistic. And I think that's where the issue of expectations comes in. I've certainly seen remedial kids mainstream. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where a child has kind of been in mainstream, not coped, stepped out of mainstream, gone into the special needs remedial setting, and then back into the mainstream mm-hmm. and actually prevailed. Mm-hmm. So I think that one is not saying, you know, nothing Absolutely. is possible. And certainly, you know, in some of the sort of very 21st century schools, they're able to incorporate remediation into the day. Aha. Uh-huh. They're able to incorporate different kinds of Desks, different kind of timetables, right? Different kinds of chairs, or you know, um, I even have some young folks in high school who are still u- who are using a C pen, which is an electronic reader, oh. in a mainstream top notch high school. So right. they can use an electronic reader. They have devices which they can either talk to or type on, and submit their work that way. Right. Um, and keeping pace with their, with their mainstream colleagues. So what we're talking about is a technologically mm. very sophisticated environment mm. that mm. can maintain a child in the system without falling behind the system yeah. and enabling them to, to, yeah. to, to keep a pace. Yeah. That might be the minority rather than the majority. Very much the minority, but there's scope for it. Sure. And I think that where you see it, then you mm. say, okay, so it's possible. Mm. So how might we generalize it? Yeah. I don't know that we have the resources for that. Natalie? Look, I mean, I think that there actually are many um, resources, but people don't know. Right. Mm. So, for example, in South Africa, many people have cell phones, even under-resourced people. Right. And cell phones have opportunities for text to be read to you. It has opportunities for voice notes to be done. Um, so there's Audible where you can listen to stories rather right. than um, necessarily read in the conventional way. And those are not difficult to access. Um, it's just that perhaps people aren't always aware of it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of the educational mm-hmm. process. So I think that we're talking about problems which are very challenging. They're not insurmountable. And I think that, again, this, this concept of um, 
cognitive modifiability. I think that's a new one for me, but I think it's a very important one because it speaks to human potential. And I think we have to look at each individual in terms of what their potential might be without being unrealistic, but that everybody has potential and not to kind of draw the line and say, well, that's it. That's the end of the story. Wendy and Natalie, I want to thank you for joining me. It's uh, been enlightening, certainly, and I hope that we've provided some perspective that, that gives people a, a different kind of understanding of, of, of these situations and that at the end of the day, there is a different outcome possible that is not necessarily a worst-case scenario. So at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned uh, a few famous people who've both lived with a learning disorder and in spite of have thrived and gone on to achieve great success. We can't all be like them, learning disordered or not. But they certainly give hope that having a learning disorder is not an endpoint, but a challenge that can and needs to be faced in order to find the path to our best selves. And I'm thinking about some of the parents that I know who've really uh, engaged intimately and intensely with the problems in their children. And I've seen some of the results and, and it's been very humbling to just kind of think about what it took. And so I'm going to leave you with a quote from a world-famous ice skater. I never thought I would quote an ice skater. He's a multiple world champion and Olympic gold medalist, Scott Hamilton, who said, the only disability in life is a bad attitude. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of BRAVE.